Welcome to episode 17 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how are things with you? Yeah, good, thanks, Brian. Really busy. As you know, we've got a lot on at the go at the moment. We're just about to launch the Fire and Security Matters Awards and Open Entries in May, and we've got a digital conference for Fire Safety Matters, which is FSM Live, later on in the year, and we've already got a number of key speakers and associations lined up with that. Yeah, so just really, really busy, and obviously this podcast is now monthly, and we've got a lot to cover. This is our first one of the year, so as you know, we always start off with the news and you can see all the latest news from fire safety matters on our website which is www.fsmatters.com you can sign up for our weekly e-newsletter which over 60,000 people now get you can see a latest edition of the magazine or sign up to get it in digital or in print through the website and you can see our archive of podcasts on there as well so a lot going on but let's start off with the news brian what's the first news story you want to cover on this episode if it's a fairly major one, Mark, it's going forward, residents will be protected through the establishment of a national regulator, which will ensure the materials used to build homes will be made safer. That's the latest announcement from the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick. The new regulator for construction products will have the necessary power to remove any product from the market that presents a significant safety risk and prosecute any companies who flout the rules on product safety, Mark. The news follows on from recent testimony to the Grenfell Tower inquiry that shone a light on the alleged dishonest practice by some manufacturers of construction products, including allegedly deliberate attempts to game the system and rig the results of safety tests. The regulator itself will enjoy strong enforcement powers, including the ability to conduct its own product testing when investigating concerns. Businesses must ensure that their products are safe before being sold in addition to testing products against the recognised safety standards. This news really marks the next major chapter in the government's fundamental overhaul of regulatory systems. The progress on regulatory reform includes the publication of the ambitious draft building safety bill, which of course we've covered in great depth on fire safety matters, representing the biggest improvements to regulation in 40 years, and also the advent of a new building safety regulator already up and running in shadow form at the moment, Mark. Now, the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, has stated, and I quote, the Grenfell Tower inquiry has heard deeply disturbing allegations of malpractice by some construction product manufacturers and their employees and of the weaknesses of the present product testing regime. We're establishing a national regulator to address these concerns and conducting a review into testing to ensure that the national approach is fit for purpose. We will continue to listen to the evidence emerging in the Grenfell Tower inquiry and obviously await the judge's ultimate recommendations. It's already clear that action is required now and that's what we're doing. Uh, Paul Scully, business minister and the minister for London, has observed, and again I quote, we all remember the tragic scenes at Grenfell Tower and the entirely justified anger which so many of us in London and throughout the UK continue to feel at the failings that episode exposed. This must never happen again, which is precisely why we're launching a new national regulator for construction materials, informed by the expertise that already exists within the Office for Product Safety and Standards. Dame Judith Hackett, Chair of the Independent Review of Building Regulations and Fire Safety, of course, has commented, this is another really important step forward in delivering the new regulatory system for building safety. The evidence of poor practice and lack of enforcement in the past has been laid bare. As the industry itself starts to address its shortcomings, I see a real opportunity to make great progress in conjunction with the national regulator. The regulator itself will operate within the Office for Product Safety and Standards, 
which is to be expanded and given up to £10 million in funding to establish the new function. It will also work with the building safety regulator and trading standards to both encourage and enforce compliance. The government has also commissioned an independent review to examine weaknesses in previous testing regimes for construction products and to recommend how abuse of the testing system can be prevented in the future. This process will be led by a panel of experts with regulatory, technical and construction industry experience and they'll report later on this year with its recommendations, Mark. Yeah, I mean, this is a significant story, Brian. It feels like this is a real year of shift change for the fire sector. I think we talked about this before. The fire sector can often be quite slow moving. It takes a long time for legislation to happen and we've talked about this in previous editions of the podcast. It's a big year this year. We've got the Grenfell Inquiry coming to a conclusion, which we would imagine will potentially lead to some actual prosecution of people involved in that. We've got the building safety bill, which will get royal assent this year, the fire safety bill. It's a real year of significant change in the sector. And and this is just a step along the way. I think the most important thing that you covered there was the part where you said that the regulator for construction products will have power to remove any product from the market that represents a significant safety risk and can prosecute companies who flout these rules on product safety. That is a significant power that should not be ignored here. That is, for me, the biggest thing that comes out of there and, and should be very welcome. If a product is not safe for use, they should have the power to move it from market and they should prosecute people that could potentially be putting people's lives at risk. In fact, you know, one of our guests on this episode of the podcast is Adam Turk, who is the CEO or the new CEO of SideRise. And he was saying to me off air that actually he thinks there's a lot more to come yet in terms of even more legislation or self-regulation of the industry that will come because he, he's been having conversations with this regulator and thinks there's a lot more to come. So certainly a lot to keep an eye on, Brian. And if we move on to our next story, if you don't mind, and similar vein, to be honest, Brian, this, this comes from Labour leader Keir Starmer, who's obviously the leader of the opposition, who has uh, laid down the risks on for his demand to combat cladding risks. So Keir Starmer has set out demands designed to tackle what the Labour Party references as the cladding scandal. As new figures suggest, up to 11 million people are at risk from life-changing cladding costs and unsellable properties. Ahead of a crunch vote in Parliament, the Labour leader called for the new National Cladding Task Force, largely modelled on a successful approach adopted by Australians, designed to address deepening crises led by cladding and to protect leaseholders from bearing this cost. With analysis showing that one in six UK homes are apparently now at risk, Starmer has also set out a comprehensive set of policy demands to kickstart action from central government, arguing that, and this is going to happen during Labour's opposition debate, that they must prove to be a turning point for this crisis. After government ministers promised 15 times to protect leaseholders, the Labour Party is urging Conservative MPs to support its motion to ensure that costs are not passed on to residents and also that those responsible for the cladding scandal are pursued. Now, we covered this in great length, Brian. You did a great article on this before Christmas. And, and ultimately, Labour, during their opposition day, outlined six demands for safer homes. So, they said the National Cladding Task Force would drive forward Labour's six demands for safer homes, which would include immediate upfront funding for the removal of deadly cladding and other urgent fire safety related work, protecting leaseholders and taxpayers by pursuing those responsible for costs, a new and legally enforceable 2022 deadline to make homes safe, 
legislation to protect residents from costs and stimulating market movement by ensuring that all affected residents can sell and remortgage and also stamping out rogue builders by reforming the sector. Now, I know that you will have more to add to this in a minute, Brian, but but obviously that opposition day debate has now happened. And I think it's no surprise to anyone that the government did not back the motions put forward by the opposition. And that being said, before you give us more information, I can certainly understand the concerns around this area. If you've got dangerous cladding on your building, first and foremost, that is dangerous to life safety and property protection. I'm just stating the obvious there, and that needs to be rectified. But of course, that will cause a real issue if you're going to sell your premises with that, because ultimately people are not going to want to pick up a property where they could have significant improvements they have to make for insurance purposes or life safety or property protection. So I certainly can understand the proposition put forward by the opposition. So I think, Brian, you wanted to add a few more bits to this. Yes, Mark. Well, Labour's National Cutting Task Force would be given strong powers to establish the full extent of dangerous materials on buildings, prioritise them according to risk, and also ensure that enforcement is taken against those who refuse to undertake the necessary works. The interesting point to note here is, Mark, that Labour's analyses of figures from the new build database and the Office for National Statistics strongly suggest that the cutting scandal, as they call it, could be even larger than previously thought, affecting as many as 11 million people. The new build database estimates the situation may affect up to 4.6 million properties, with an average of 2.4 residents per property. Data also shows, apparently, that the cutting scenario risks freezing the entire market for flats after sales halved compared to last year. Now, Keir Starmer, I'm quoting him here, Mark, he said this, This must be a turning point for those affected by the cladding scandal. Millions of people have been sucked into this crisis due to years of dither, delay and half-baked solutions from the government. For many leaseholders, the dream of home ownership has become a nightmare. They feel abandoned, locked down in flammable homes and facing ruinous costs for repair work and interim safety measures. Now, prior to the debate in Parliament, Mark, Keir Starmer urged Conservative MPs to vote with the Labour Party in Parliament and put their constituent safety and security first. He also urged the government to take hold of this crisis through the establishment of a national task force and by implementing Labour's six core demands. But it looks like that's not going to happen. Our first guest on episode 17 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Brett Ennals. Brett is the founder and managing director at Cento, the nationwide recruitment company with a keen focus on the fire and security markets in addition to the health and safety sector. A graduate in business and finance at the South Nottingham College, Brett began his career in the business world back in 1989 after a four-year spell with the RAF Special Signals Unit. Across seven years, he worked as an engineer for both Able Alarms and Gent before becoming a regional manager for Notifier in May 1999 and then moving into a similar role at Defence of fire detection systems two years later. Just shy of four years in the role of sales manager for Honeywell followed before Brett established Cento in 2007. Today, the business provides a tailored range of recruitment solutions for the supply of both contract and permanent staff. Earlier this week, I chatted with Brett about the skill shortage in the sector, what salaries look like at present, and also the role of subcontractors in the market. First, Brett offered a timely overview of the recruitment landscape in order to set the scene. the economic downturn of 2008, the nation finds itself in a similarly gloomy period just now, given the ongoing impact of the pandemic. Set against that backdrop, Brett, what's the recruitment market looking like at present? Personally, we're quite busy at the moment, the fire and security sector. Initially, last April, things did grind to a halt, as you'd expect, but it then took a similar sort of pattern to 2008, whereby 
roles were put on hold, but slowly but surely they've crept back over a period of time. And we're back to, I would say, probably pre-COVID levels at the moment. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the fire and security sector is quite a, a decent, solid sector to be in. It's not all negative. £16 billion industry in the UK, and it's, it's technically grown 2%, according to our stats, over the course of, of last year. I think really the issue that is out there at the moment is the candidate confidence to move jobs. Candidates are a bit reluctant to move jobs, which you know doesn't help the situation. But other than that, people are still recruiting. There has been a great deal of talk focused on the skill shortages across the fire and security business sectors, Brett. There are several initiatives that have been kickstarted to address the situation. But do you believe it's the case that someone needs to take ownership of this and really drive positive change here? Yeah, I think there's some very good initiatives out there from various different sources. I mean, personally, I think there should be more of a cohesive approach. And I think there should be more education into schools and colleges to make to raise the awareness. So I don't think anyone's actually taking ownership of that personally. Again, it's just my personal opinion. I've recently been through a friendship situation with my own son, uh, who's 16, or was 16, he's 17 now, but he was 16. And I would say he's gone in to be an electrician, but... I would say getting an apprenticeship for a 16-year-old is incredibly difficult due to health and safety rules. But not only that, it's also the availability of training um, at local colleges. So I think the fire and security industry is missing a trick um, by not assisting 16 to 18-year-olds. Most of them want 18-year-olds, but there's a, there's a, there's a glut of, of school leavers coming out now that are looking for apprenticeships that can't get them. So I think there is, uh, there is something more to be done. When it comes to salaries, Brett, are they appearing to hold firm in the recruitment market just now, or are you witnessing fluctuations? Yeah, salaries are always an emotive subject, um, but I think they're increasing, and um, and this is being driven by the skill shortage, really. Um, it's market forces more than anything, but in, in, in essence, salaries are increasing, or demands of, of certainly for engineers for, for greater salaries are increasing. And I know that is putting pressure on to a lot of the installing businesses. Industry discussion has also realised something of a debate about the perceived reliance on subcontractors. What are your own views on this issue, Brett? Again, personal personal views, but uh, I think it's a catch-22 situation, unfortunately. A lot of the clients that we deal with are looking for permanent staff, but due to shortage, you know, the skill shortage, they're, they're using contractors. Um, engineers then perceive that they're going to earn a lot more money as a contractor or they get a better work-life balance, and so subsequently then leave permanent jobs to go to become a contractor, which then increases the skill shortage, um, and so it goes on. The concern that I've got for, for people leaving... I think the contractor market is saturated and I think that there's a lot of engineers leaving permanent positions to become contractors that haven't done the due diligence to set themselves up correctly, set themselves up as a legal entity correctly and be insured correctly. As one of the sector's foremost recruitment businesses, what would be your best practice advice for candidates and those companies who are currently recruiting as we move further into the new year? I think if you're, if you're a company that's looking to recruit, don't focus your marketing or your job adverts on money. A lot of people move for progression and a better working experience than just for, just for money. And then you need to ask yourself the question. I think start by asking yourself the question, why would someone want to come and work for me? If it ends up all being about money and it all ends up being about pounds, they are generally the candidates that will then move on again for a better offer. Um, and they're not necessarily the sort of candidates you're looking for. If you're a candidate looking for a new role, 
again, think about your own personal portfolio. Think about what training you've done, what achievements you've, you've what achievements you've gained during your career, what sort of sites you've worked on, big sites. As they say, pretty much blow your own trumpet. And finally, Brett, if our readers want to contact Sento for advice and details on the latest vacancies, what's the best way for them to do so? Either via the website, so sentogroup.com um, so or findsecurityjobs.com. Contact me or any of the team via LinkedIn. All the contact details are on there. I mean, we're currently offering a free consultation service for any company that's looking to recruit. Basically offering advice, tips and tricks on how to do it free. Quite happy to uh, help anyone out. So back into the news now, Brian, and, and you know, every so often you get a massive prosecution that we cover prosecutions all the time on our website, which for those of you that don't know the website, just go to www.fsmatters.com and all the latest fire safety prosecutions are in there. But one thing that you often see in the fire sector is there isn't massive fines. And it's something that I've talked about at length in the past that actually maybe that's something that we need to address a bit more in the fire sector is having larger enforcement fines to actually potentially scare people into complying with legislation more. You really need to have a deterrent. So in this situation, I thought we couldn't ignore the Cameron House Hotel fire. So the owner was fined £500,000 in the wake of fire safety failings at the Loch Lomond premises. Now, if you haven't read Brian's article on this on our website, it's a must. It's got more detail in it than you'll find anywhere else in the sector. Brian's got some real inside track into this and we'll cover it now. So Cameron House Resort, Loch Lomond Limited, which is the owner of the five-star Cameron House Hotel, which is located in Ballock, has been fined £500,000 for fire safety failings, which led to the deaths of two guests staying at the premises in late 2017. Also, an employee of the company had an 18-month supervision order imposed, as well as a community payback order, and has been instructed to carry out 300 hours of unpaid work after admitting health and safety failings related to the blaze. So, Dumbarton Sheriff Court heard that in the early hours of the 18th of December 2017, Christopher O'Malley removed ash from an open fire in the hotel, which is to be found on the banks of Loch Lomond, as part of his duties as a night porter. He then emptied the ash into a plastic bag and put it in a cupboard which contained combustible materials, including kindling and newspapers. An alarm sounded at 6.39am and members of staff noticed smoke emanating from the cupboard. Shortly afterwards, the fire began to take hold and the flames quickly spread. Upwards of 200 guests and members of staff were quickly evacuated from the premises. After 8am, it was discovered that guests Richard Dyson and partner Simon Midley, 38 and 32 respectively, were missing. Firefighters eventually recovered their bodies from the second floor. The duo, who had travelled from London to stay at the premises as part of a holiday, were found to have died as the result of smoke and fire and gas inhalation. In an incident that occurred just three days earlier, 35-year-old O'Malley had been told not to put ash into the plastic bags. Fire risk assessments carried out the premises in 2016 and 2017 found that there was no written policy in place covering the emptying of hot ash from open fires. At the time of the fatal fire, there was still no written procedure to follow. On the 22nd of August 2017, the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service carried out an audit of the hotel which highlighted the unacceptable issue of combustibles being stored within the cupboard. A multi-agency investigation which involved Police Scotland, the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service and West Dunbartonshire Council took place. 
This was overseen by the Health and Safety Investigation Unit of the Crown Office and the Procurator Fiscal Service. The investigation found that the Cameron House Resort, which is Loch Lomond Limited, had failed to take the necessary fire safety measures required to ensure that the safety of employees and guests had failed to put in place proper procedures, training and supervision of the disposal of ash and embers of the hotel's solid fuel fires. So Cameron House Resort, Loch Lomond Limited, also failed to keep the cupboards that contained potential ignition sources free from combustibles and maintain an empty metal bins used for the storage of ash and embers. So the company admitted two charges of breaching the Fire Scotland Act of 2005 and the fines levied were reduced from 750000 in relation to an early guilty plea. O'Malley admitted to breaching Section 7A and 33-1A of the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, which relate to the obligation of an employee to take responsible care for the health and safety of people affected by their acts or admissions at work. So I'm going to throw over to Brian in a minute to give you a bit more information. But this is just an absolutely tragic story. It's a double fatality. It's a place where you'd expect to be safe in a hotel. And I think, as you can see here, the level of fine in force, Brian, it's pretty obvious why it's as high as it is, because there's many aggregating factors there that they just didn't take action despite these serious issues being identified. It's a completely avoidable incident. And it, it could have been even worse than the tragedy that it already was, because there were over 200 guests in there. So this is one of the biggest finds that you'll see in a long time. And, you know, you've got some really great insight into it. We've got to go into some real detail there that, you know, just wasn't available in the wider public domain. And there's just so much to be learned from here. If you're a hotelier... It's essential that you follow the legislation in place. Make sure that proper risk assessments are taken into consideration. Making sure that you know storing combustible materials in an unsafe place and putting burning embers into combustible materials and then next to further combustible materials is just obviously a recipe for disaster, Brian. So I'll you know I'll, I'll get off of my soapbox in terms of ranting, but this is certainly one of the saddest and most major prosecutions we're going to cover in a while. And I think there's more that you want to say on it. There is, Mark. I have several quotes from some of the people involved in this case. Uh, sentencing O'Malley of Renton in West Dunbartonshire, Sheriff William Gallagher was presiding on the case, said to him, Your acts on 18th of December 2017 caused a fire to start in a cupboard at the Cameron House Hotel. The fire developed from that cupboard and spread to many parts of the building, which had to be evacuated. Some guests managed to do so with relative ease. Some found it more difficult, crawling along corridors to avoid the smoke. Others had to be rescued by ladder. No doubt some of those who experienced these traumatic events will be affected by them for a long time to come. Two others were unable to escape from the fire, and as a consequence of inhaling smoke and fire gases, tragically lost their lives. Sentencing O'Malley to work in the community rather than handing down a custodial term, Gallagher explained, This is not an attempt by the court to diminish what happened and the tragic loss of life. Rather, it's in recognition that it was not remotely in your contemplation that anything you did on 17th or 18th of December 2017 would have led to the catastrophe which in fact ensued. Sentencing Cameron House Resort, Loch Lomond Limited, Sheriff Gallagher stated that it was unacceptable that the hotel's operators didn't act on previous advice from the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service to remove combustibles from the cupboard. He concluded, and I quote, I do not consider that the company simply disregarded advice and recommendations, but rather that specific advice and recommendations were translated or interpreted wrongly or incompletely. Alistair Duncan, head of the Health and Safety Investigation Unit, commented, The failings on the part of Cameron House Resort, Loch Lomond Limited and Christopher O'Malley led to the deaths of Simon Midgley and Richard Dyson. The tragic loss of these two lives has exerted a devastating impact on their families and friends. 
These convictions and sentences are the culmination of a thorough and technical investigation carried out by the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service, Western Bartonshire Council and Police Scotland, overseen by the Health and Safety Investigation Unit of the Crown Office and the Procurator Fiscal Service. Duncan went on to state, this incident should serve as a stark reminder to other companies that failure to implement the necessary fire safety measures can have terrible consequences. So Brian, we've got one more news story that we want to cover and what have you got for us? Yes, this one's about firefighters, Mark. Researchers at the University of Central Lancashire have created a new nationwide database designed to assess the potential link between exposure to fire toxicants and the increased occurrence of cancers and other diseases among firefighters. Known as the UK Firefighters Cancer and Disease Registry, the database will collect information on firefighters' work routines, their exposure to fire effluents, their lifestyle and their health. This will enable scientists to identify and recognise most common cancers and diseases related to firefighters' work and, in the future, offer preventative health screening, education and support that's designed to protect firefighters' health. Initiated and co-sponsored by the Fire Brigade Union and clinicians working at the Royal Preston Hospital, the project will allow university researchers to analyse data on a long-term basis, Mark. As part of this, they'll track the number of cancer cases among firefighters over time, investigate possible causes of cancer, such as exposure to those fire toxicants we mentioned earlier, and other diseases, and also evaluate the risk of different cancers among firefighters compared with the rest of the population. This research will allow scientists to fully understand the link between the exposure to fire effluent that firefighters face at work and the prevalence of cancers or other diseases. All firefighters, both serving and retired, as well as those that have or have not been previously diagnosed with an illness, will be invited to register, Mark. The research follows on from an independent University of Central Lancashire report commissioned by the FBU that provides guidance for fire brigades on how to minimise exposure to fire effluents, as well as highlighting the high levels of carcinogens present in the working environment of firefighters. Now, Professor Anna Steck of the university, who specialises in researching fire chemistry and toxicity, has said, and I quote, the UK's National Cancer Registry and Analysis Service is currently not able to provide any reliable data on cancer incidents or mortality among firefighters. Setting up the UK Firefighters Cancer and Disease Registry will enable us to identify and keep track of all firefighters who have been diagnosed with cancer and other diseases, as well as identify any association between firefighters' occupation and exposure to fire carcinogens. Professor Steck went on to state, we're calling on all firefighters, including those new to the career, and those that have moved on to register with the UK Firefighters Cancer and Disease Registry. Filling in this registry will help us attract the rates of cancer and disease cases over time, as well as helping us to recognise the most common diseases and cancers related to firefighters' work and the exposure to fire toxins. Matt Rack, who is the General Secretary of the FBU, has commented, firefighters take on huge risks when tackling an emergency, but the hazards post their health don't stop when a fire is extinguished. Every current and former firefighter who suffered a serious or chronic illness needs to add their name to this register, such that we can then further expose the shocking numbers of firefighters suffering from cancer and other diseases. Rack went on to state, we need to be doing far more to avoid contamination in the first place. Also, as the body of evidence continues to grow here, politicians in the UK must be willing to step up and protect their own firefighters. In closing, Mark, the UK Firefighters Cancer and Disease Registry can be accessed on the University of Central Lancashire's website, and the URL for that is www.uclan.com. Yeah, good positive story in terms of initiative to end on, which is how we like to end in terms of our news coverage often. There's no downside to this. I mean, those of you that listen to our sister podcast that I host, the Health and Safety Matters podcast, know that we often talk about asbestosis, you know, 
how the HSE did its hidden killer campaign of protecting people that are exposed to asbestos and can get asbestosis on the back of that. And I don't see this as any different than that, Brian. Firefighters do a really important job and a really dangerous job. And they can be exposed to some horrifically dangerous gases and carcinogenics. You know, this, this can happen. And Ultimately, this research seems to be a really, really sensible idea because I've said this before on a HSM podcast, everyone that goes to work has the right to come home safe. Even if you do a high-risk job like a firefighter, you still have the right to come home safe. And this is a really important study. It's great to see the FBU are backing it. And hopefully it gets some really positive results, like, like the Hidden Killer campaign did do for the HSE. And we can take then preventative protectionary steps to further protect firefighters. So really positive campaign, I'd say, some research to finish off this news on this podcast. So now I'm delighted to welcome back Warren Spencer, who joins us in every episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Warren is a leading lawyer in fire safety in the UK and has actually prosecuted more cases than anybody else under the fire safety order. Towards the end of last year, FSM actually partnered with Warren to do a digital conference on the fire safety bill and what it could mean for fire safety regulation in the UK. So I called up Warren to see what was discussed during this conference. And we also chatted about what Warren thinks might happen this year in relation to fire safety laws with both the fire safety bill and the Building Safety Bill looking to get Royal Assent. Warren, welcome back to the podcast. We're back for 2021 and we're thrilled that you are still a guest for us on every monthly edition now that we do the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Did you have a great Christmas break? It was quiet, obviously, with the restrictions that we've got in place, but it was a nice and welcome break. Thanks, Mark. Well, we obviously did a big conference together, which I want to talk about today before Christmas. It was the first time that we partnered together to do a fire safety legal conference. It was a pay-to-attend digital conference, and it focused on the new fire safety bill. So just wanted to use today's podcast, because this was a really useful session. For those that didn't hear it and take part in it, can you tell us a bit more about what you covered? Because it wasn't just you either. You obviously had leading barrister Joseph Hart was part of it as well. So what did the session cover, Warren? So we dealt with the fire safety bill as drafted as it is at the moment and, and the views on how it may alter anything if in fact the bill does alter anything in relation to the fire safety order. We looked at how the bill has now or is attempting to clarify Article 6 in relation to the fire safety order and what it may mean uh, in the future with in relation to the premises and the now more specific reference to what is covered by the order and what isn't. Yeah, and obviously this was the first time that you've done a digital version of this because, you know, I don't think everybody knows this, but you're quite an experienced trainer in terms of fire safety. You've done numerous face-to-face events. What kind of things do you normally cover, Warren, when you do your training? Well, there's two kinds of training that I do. The first is for fire services and, and for fire safety officers in relation to enforcement and putting together enforcement files, enforcement notice appeals or prosecution files, collection of evidence um, and and things like that. So I I train in that arena, but also now quite a lot of training for private companies, in particular companies with portfolios of premises and where responsibilities for fire safety management are shared with other companies such as supported living or um, shopping centres or airports, things like that. 
Now, obviously, this is quite a landmark year for the UK in terms of fire safety legislation. Right now, we've got two bills going through Parliament that we hope will get royal assent towards the end of the year, which is obviously the fire safety bill, which you discussed during that conference, and also the building safety bill. Now, we've talked off air about this before, but have you given any direct input or been asked for any input in the fire safety bill to give any views on it? Because obviously you've prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anybody else in, well, in history. I have had talks with the Home Office in relation to the fire safety bill. Um, I had a couple of Zoom calls during the first lockdown and gave examples of cases that I dealt with and provided my view of where the order needed looking at and needed reviewing. I mean, in a nutshell, we talked about this before, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think you've actually said that from what you can see so far, this is a very welcome look at the fire safety order, isn't it, through the fire safety bill? This is something that you actually support the government looking at. Absolutely. It, it was drafted in 2004, and um, although it, it's the fire safety order 2005, it actually came into being and into effect on the 1st of October 2006. So, you know, we're talking about this year being 15 years since the fire safety order came into effect. And obviously, during that time, the order's been tested. There have been, you know, up to about 800 cases. And it's time now, I think, that you need to look at it to see if it's still fit for purpose. And also, if the way in which the world has changed, digitalization, etc., um, whether it needs looking at and clearly uh, to take account of things that have happened, which we need to learn from, which has obviously happened over the last few years. Well, obviously, we're soon going to be announcing another similar digital conference, which we will reveal in the next podcast, uh, how people can get involved and enjoy. But, you know, we're lucky to have you in terms of giving legal advice. But if people want to get in touch with you outside of this podcast, reach out. What's the easiest way to do so, Warren? A lot of people contact me via LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as Fire Safety Law. I have a website, uh, firesafetylaw.co.uk. On that platform, you have the opportunity to make any kind of inquiry. Uh, and obviously, I'm a solicitor at Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and uh, we're easily accessible on the net as blackhurstbud.co.uk. And if you want to look at any of the great articles that Warren's done for us in the past, and there have been numerous, just go to our website, which is www fsmatters.com and if you type Warren's name in the search box we've got a plethora of articles from him so Warren we're looking forward to seeing you back next month and thank you for your time on this episode thank you Mark stay well guest on this edition of the podcast is Adam Turk, CEO at the SideRise Group. Adam joined the SideRise family of British manufacturing businesses last May. The group includes SideRise Insulation, a specialist in passive fire protection solutions for building envelopes. The proud holder of an MBA from the University of Warwick's Business School, Adam became National Sales Manager for Housing at British Gypsum in 1998, before moving to Artex Blue Hawk two years later and becoming Sales Director. A spell as marketing director for Artex Raw Plug followed before Adam then assumed the role of UK sales and marketing director at Geld Wen. Adam then served as commercial director for the Polypipe Group across the next 11 years. He subsequently joined Baxi Heating in June 2016, spending three years in the role of managing director for the commercial division. Earlier this week, Mark interviewed Adam about several key topics. Here's what he had to say.
Callum, how are you? Hi, Mark. I'm good, thank you. Good. Looking out at the uh, some snow outside and, yeah, all well here. Yeah, it's definitely uh, the latest thing that we all have to contend with from Covid to Brexit and now weather conditions. And it's somewhat of a baptism of fire because you're, you're relatively new in post as CEO, aren't you? When did you join SideRise? Um, well, I originally came into the SideRise fold in May last year, initially in an operational role, and then moved up through a couple of uh, positions into the CEO role on the 1st of January. Tony James, who's been in the business for nearly 30 years, has, has retired into a non-exec role at the same time. So let's talk about SideRise. SideRise was established more than 45 years ago, but I'm actually not sure that that many of our listeners will necessarily be familiar with you. So can you tell us a bit more about SideRise, please? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think people in SideRise often say that they're they're the industry's best kept secret. And certainly when I was first contacted about the role a year or so ago, um, I wasn't very familiar with the company either. SideRise is a business that's uh, majored on technical and engineering excellence and has been less focused on going out there and being a disciple to tell the world what it does. So people who work with SideRise know us really, really well. But people outside of that immediate envelope maybe aren't as familiar with the business. And, And that's certainly something we're trying to change. We we appointed Helen Massey as a new marketing manager uh, in the summer last year, and we're really moving our messaging along now to uh, to really help a much wider audience get, get to grips with SideRise. In terms of our business, to answer your question directly, we are uh, our market is all about passive fire solutions for the building envelope, and that's what we major on with certainly market leaders in the UK. And with regards specifically, when we say passive fire solutions, what we're talking about is cavity barriers, and we're talking about fire compartmentation we're talking about that insulation that protects the building envelope so yeah i'm very familiar with helen known her for years and uh, she's got me very much up to speed with side rise and i am familiar and one of the things you say is integrity in all we do and that's quite a bold brand statement what underpins this you know this has been tony's mantra our outgoing ceo tony always did everything properly even when many many years ago the business was much smaller Everything in the company was done absolutely as it should be. Um, and Tony recognised, I think, six or seven years ago, the importance of testing and has literally spent millions of pounds testing our product in so many numerous different types of uh, application. And that has given us the ability to ensure that every piece of advice we give is absolutely the right advice for the application and the customer. And the business will walk away from a job if it's not going to be done properly. And we we mark that our integrity is more important than than achieving a sale. Well, that, that is a tremendous ethos to have. We all know that the fire safety market doesn't move particularly quickly and testing takes a long time and certainly is an essential thing to do. And the fact that you're committed to that is is a real credit to you guys. And I think that leads on to another question I had for you. What differentiates SideRise from the passive fire insulation market? Well, I think it goes hand in hand with this doing things properly. I mean, we say that it's a, it's a story of insight, ingenuity, integrity. So insight in that the business is resourced and will take the time to properly understand the situation, application, project, environment that, that we're being involved in. We will use the ingenuity of our people using the data that we have from all the testing, the technical knowledge, a very wide range of competence in the business to give us that ability to make the right decision about the solution. And then we use our integrity to provide that into the uh, the customer, the application in the right way. So for us, 
it's if you come to SideRise, you know we're going to take the time to do it right. You're going to get the right answer for what you need. And we're going to be honest with you. And I think our customers, particularly in the wake of, of, of the Grenfell situation, have come to really rely and depend on us and trust us that if they work with us and we give advice, that that, 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 is, that is the right thing to do. So another commitment you've made is the by your side commitment. As a manufacturer, what does the commitment of by your side mean to the market and also to your project stakeholders? You know, it is a complex environment in which we operate. I think um, a lot of focus has been given on the cladding and not so much what goes on behind it, but we know that the secret of good fire protection for the building envelope is good compartmentation and therefore the cavity barrier that goes behind is really important. And the by your side really reflects the fact that we will work with our customers right the way through the process. We don't let go of their hand at any point. So we're there when they're specifying and designing the building to give advice on on what's required. Um, We're there when the installer's procuring and starting to install. We're there training them. We're there on site with them helping them. And we also have a very clever piece of technology which allows people to review the work that's being done on site to make sure it's done properly. And I think we wanted to get this across to the market that we are a company that are we are very well resourced for the size of our business and for what we do. And we have the people, we have the expertise to hold your hand and be alongside you all the way through the process so you can be comfortable that if you use our products, you will get this compartmentation issue around the passive fire solution completely correct. And of course, for anyone listening to this who wants a bit more information about By Your Side. It was very prominent in the last issue of Fire Safety Matters. In fact, it was on the front cover of our issue, followed up with a really fascinating article that was written by SideRise. And all you need to do is look at our online edition of the magazine. You can go to www.fsmatters.com and you can see all about By Your Side. But if I move on to the last couple of questions, Adam. So without giving away any trade secrets here, can you maybe give us a little bit of a sneak peek or an insight to what might be next in the product pipeline for SideRise? Yeah, you know, look, I think probably fair to say that we we really excel on the high-rise buildings. And there is this talk amongst government at the moment about whether this 18-metre threshold will come down to 11. And what we're starting to see is a real interest in providing solutions for passive uh, fire protection on masonry uh, applications. And so we have a range of products that uh, work well in the masonry market. We've uh, created a couple of new ones, one we're particularly excited about. So we're going to come out to the masonry market with a range of uh, solutions to help create a good passive fire protection in in that masonry environment for that kind of four or five-storey building. So just in closing, this is a nice time to ask you. You've obviously got a lot going on, and right now a key driver for you is to get as many people to know about the commitments that you've just said and what SideRise is all about. So if people want to find out more about SideRise, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, you know, get in touch with us. We we run um, net promoter score surveys every month, and one of the things that's really come across is just how powerful the interaction with our people is at all levels that they're getting you know numerous good compliments back so please touch base with us come to our website call us um, get in touch with your local facade manager talk to our technical representatives talk to our helplines and i think that first point of contact will be one that you we certainly would welcome and that you will enjoy and get a lot from and hopefully then we can start to build a, a loyal relationship with you Adam, firstly, best of luck in the new role. Sounds like you've got a lot to look forward to there, and, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Mark. Really, really appreciate the opportunity. You know, I've come in to a fantastic business, and I'm very humbled to have the team around me that, that I 
have. And um, yeah, we have got a lot to do and we're all very excited to be getting on and doing it. And, and yeah, really thank you for the opportunity to speak to your readers. us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Brett Ennels from Cento, Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors and also Adam Turk of the Sidewise Group for their valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. Music.